This episode is sponsored in part by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash disruptors. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that tries to explain that while money isn't love, patronage is. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. The most often cited way in which artists have benefited from the mass audience that the internet provides is with comics. Before the advent of the internet, a cartoonist had to get signed up with a sufficient number of newspapers or supplement or derive most of their income from illustration. The web gave comic artists who could never have convinced a mainstream publication or maybe even an alt-weekly to publish their work an incredible outlet, and many have thrived. Zach Wienersmith is one of these. He's developed a strong following with his multi-panel Saturday morning breakfast cereal strip, proving that recently with a Kickstarter for a new collection that set out to raise $20,000 and finished at over $340,000. The Kickstarter is the most prominent demonstration of Zach's connection with his audience. It shows how well dialed up he is at producing something that appeals to the science-minded and geeky who also like filthy sex jokes. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Zach. That's a great introduction. <laughs> I hope I summarized your entire career. No, that was it. That was exactly it. <laughs> but I think it was, what's great about your strip, and uh, what, the reason I live not even that long ago, I was staying up uh, late reading it by accident. You start down this uh, <laughs> rabbit hole. I'm like, oh, I haven't read that one either. Oh, that, oh, oh my gosh, it's 1 a.m. I feel like you have this great audience in mind. You f think of your readers as uh, fairly smart people, and it seems like you have a lot of scientists, uh, people you know, in both hard sciences, soft sciences, and geeks like me who – uh, come to the strip. Do you find that your audience uh, responds? It's like, yeah, we this speaks to me because it's so incredibly, you know, scientific at one level. I hope so. I um, it occurred. It's occurred to me that if I were to focus on something in particular, I could probably get a bigger audience. But I kind of like the idea of having this sort of <laughs> coalition of geeks uh, reading the strips. Well, I think it's funny because you wear uh, so many of your ideas on your sleeve. As, as you don't, um, I mean, you don't pull punches. And there's this. I want to say you have the sweetest level of extremism that I've ever seen. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, yeah. you tell the truth, like, you know, you always represent God as this great circle with sort of like little uh, triangles in it. And God is always mm -hmm. doing ridiculous things, but they're perfectly um, in keeping with a lot of things that religious people assert that God is doing. You're, and you're just like, <laughs> hey, here's the logical extreme if God were to do that. Yeah, I try to, as a rule, like when I, if I'm, if I'm doing jokes about religion, I specifically don't want to make fun of religious people. I just want to make fun of bad ideas, which are obviously not the um, sole domain of religion, uh, but they, they do have a, a good number. It's true. You tweak everybody who seems to have um, like a religious or fantastical way of thinking shows yeah. up. But there's also that let's take this to the logical uh, extreme approach was it uh, uh, reductio ad absurdum logic where, uh, for instance, I love the Superman strip where you're like, all right, Superman has this enormous amount of power. What if we actually were to put that to use? So he should really be pushing a turbine <laughs> 24 hours a day <laughs> because he could generate all this electricity. And wait a minute, you know, because obviously Superman wants to do the most good. Yep. Yeah, I, I like ideas like that because, you know, an idea like that starts as just what would be the most efficient use of Superman, and then you can really stretch it out uh, when you start. Because it's like, if you think about what Superman does in a comic book, other than, you know, now and then he saves the world, of course, but a lot of what he does is just stop in crooks, and it's like, you can imagine, you have someone who has so much strength he could tear the world in two, and what he's doing is stopping <laughs> petty crime. You know, it doesn't make any sense. And and also, I, I really believe the way the way politics works is eventually he would have to be guilted into doing something like running a turbine or uh, or submitting to medical tests. 
Yeah, and they, I mean, they sometimes get into that in the comics where, where you, you see the car, the, uh, the artists and writers go, God, you know, this is, we've given them all these powers. We should take them all away. Or is it ridiculous that, you know, right, as you say, you could tear the world in half in one strip, but he seems to be able to be punched by somebody else and fall over in another. <laughs> Does that, I, I don't get that, but I feel like you're, you always are picking away at the re- ridiculous ideas, some of which are encoded in society and some in popular culture. There's so many strips you've done with a parent giving advice to a child and the child going, wait a minute. You know, <laughs> children are, I have two children. They're extremely logical. They can find these inconsistent. You're like, look, if this were the case, you know, then, and the parents are either nonplussed or have a terrible, terrible answer in response. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, you know, I, I have, I have at this point, I have 11 nieces and nephews I have a very large family. And uh, it, it is the case. I, I mean, this is a bit of a romantic view, but it, it is the case as you've seen to some extent that, uh, that little kids have no reference frame, so so they're a little more honest about big questions. And uh, whereas you know, as an adult, you sort of accumulate all this baggage of of what's appropriate and like ways that are reasonable to think, and so you stop asking basic questions. And uh, that's why it's sort of fun to write kids asking these uh, philosophical questions. It's great. It feels like you've kept some of that wonder of childhood, even though you're, you know, jaded and cynical like I am. No, you're not. (laughs) Actually, I think that's the thing that I always come back to. It's one of the reasons why I like your strip is that it's very sweet in its nature, even as you discuss the – it's the Sarah Silverman of cartoons. It's like (laughs) it's got a sweet face on it and then it just produces these filthy, filthy statements. But because of that, that counterpoint I think makes – it possible for you to present sometimes really horrible ideas or concepts in a way that you can read it and are funny because of that the contrast. I, I hope so. Well, I, my, my general view of people is that, I mean, people do horrifying things all the time, but they tend to do them for reasons. So, that, <laughs> there's, you know, things don't tend to be horrible in the long term. I think for that reason is that, uh, you know, people tend to figure out the ways in which it's okay. So, you know, like I'll, I'll do comics where people are having sort of horrific sex acts but uh <laughs> but i don't know it, there's no non-consent it's just part of the relationship um so so there's a weird way in which it can be you know sort of sweet as you say uh even though maybe to an outsider it's horrifying that's probably true of everybody's sex life actually it's it's, tr- it's sweet internally but it's horrifying to anyone uh who found out the truth? Well, I have this notion about – I think it's true with sex and religion and politics is people think they're all doing or thinking the same thing. So yes. And <laughs> I would love to take any two people in any religion, like to down to the closest extreme that they're even in the same congregation and quiz them in rooms separately about what they believe. And you would find their beliefs are really rather divergent on some major points. Yeah. I, what I've been fascinated by is I – um. I think individually you think, well, I've got my cosmology of the universe figured out, but other people probably just watch TV all day. But if you ask someone, like everybody has a very detailed view of how the whole universe works, how things like love work, how luck works, how economics work. They have these very – I mean they're often crazy – but like everybody actually has a system worked out. That's been surprising to me. That's a really great realization, I think, too. I mean, I think yeah. that's that's why it's hard for me to take absolutes or to be extreme in positions because I realize that even if my uh, like, and I think this may come back to why you use logic a lot of times. This crazy weapon, logic that you use in your strips. Yes, I defeated them with logic. Is that you're trying? To, you know, often exposing that there's um, there's this great discrepancy between these things that people don't want to examine. We leave it. 
under the surface. And I find it, you know, I don't want to be extreme. If there's things that are logically founded, I'll follow them to a logical extreme, but I don't want to have a position where like, I don't know why this is true, but I absolutely believe that other people should too, because when picked at, it usually falls apart. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, it's, it's nice to be in the position of the cartoonist where all you're doing is picking instead of positing. <laughs> so, so the, the origin of your strip, I, I don't actually know how your strip came about. I know that you've got a degree in literature. Mm-hmm. You're one of those, I have a degree in art, so I can, ooh, I can, we can laugh, laugh at each other. And, uh, and that's why I'm a journalist because I have a degree in art. And you're a cartoonist with your degree in literature. Um, all the programmers I know, I think, have hypertext fiction uh, degrees. And, uh, yes. but you, you know, you obviously have a drawing talent and it's, the way in which you draw, I mean, people can look in the show notes, follow a link to your site, is it's not a conventional cartooning style in the way that we're used to seeing in a, a newspaper strip or a comic book. It's it's on the – like what used to be called the alt side of things, which is now becoming more way, mainstream. Did you always draw this way? Is this a style you've had and it transitioned to the web or is this something that came to you at an older age or in college and you started just going, wait, this is something I can do? Um, I uh, – I – I think you could probably tell from the comic I'm more of a writing person than an art person. Uh, so whereas with with the writing, I feel like I've made more conscious choices and pursued it more. With the art, I've kind of just uh, sort of gone with the flow. So I'm, I'm I'm sure I do have influences or you know people have stolen from outright, but uh, but I, I I don't I don't know that artistically, like just purely in terms of the the physical uh, drawing, I, I I don't know that I have any very strong influences. So you were more of a um, compelled to write person than compelled to draw person. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the joke is, you know, a cartoonist is someone who can't write well and can't draw well, but can do a little of, of both. Well, that's what I like about um, Randall Monroe is that, like, you know, yeah. XKCD is a great example. And I, and I will say this for you at a different level, too, is you have a very consistent style. Your characters have a certain feel. You draw, you know, from time to time, um, you know, the same person or kind of thing shows up. And it's not just arbitrary. It's not bad drawing. It's good drawing. And it's a very idiosyncratic style. No one's going to, you know, imitate. Saturday right. morning breakfast cereal. But the, uh, and same thing, XKCD, I think Monroe, obviously not much of an artist. And he, uh, just like sort of Harvey Picar, he had a lot to say and he figured out yeah. how to say it. But over time, he's developed this very consistent style that is now yeah. a thing. And so XKCD is not just instantly recognizable as is your work. It's, um, it has an internal consistency. The guy with the hat who's always incredibly amoral and so forth. And, and I see that's the recurring thing. You figured out how you wanted to depict God. You figured out um, how you can convey, even if this isn't, you know, your obsession wasn't the drawing part, you figured out how to convey this in a way that's entertaining to look at and you can get your ideas through there. Yeah, well, I, I think I mean, Scott McCloud said that uh, the more abstract you make your character, the more people can sort of feel like they're embodied in it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, I, so I think it's no coincidence that those of us who have large audiences online tend to not necessarily be the best artists. Um, because I, I think sometimes overly polished art can be worse, especially if you're doing a gag strip. So, like, part of why I like drawing God is just sort of a, <laughs> a, a circle. Is it's it's completely expressionless. I mean, you can you can sort of work a little emotion into like the the skew, like the the way it's shaped or whatever, but not really. And I I feel like I, I do the same thing. Actually, I've used the same principle on characters. If I if I want a character to really seem emotionless, um, I'll I'll make sure they have giant glasses so you can't see their eyes. Oh yeah, yeah. Your scientist is always screaming about something and uh... right. 
a lot of angry scientists in this chat. There are <laughs> yeah. lots of angry. I, I think there's actually, I find a great affinity between one of my favorite animated programs, Futurama, and what you do too, is there's that same, there's an incredibly geeky vibe where you slip in. I mean, they have to control it a little bit. All those guys have like um, PhDs and, uh, yeah. you know, the, what the one of the creators, David X. Cohen, is the brother of a friend of mine, in fact, and he solved a previously unsolved math problem when he was pursuing his PhD about pancake flipping. It's very funny. And um, so he's cited in that. And then they go on, they make this show that's super geeky, but they have to dial it back a little bit. They can't make an SMBC uh, on the mainstream, (laughs) but you can be as geeky as you want. You can follow any ideas, however obscure, because you've got this audience that there's, uh, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of scientists who read in English who could get the joke. And it's not only that, I I think it helps because like now and then I'll do like a couple weeks ago, I was doing jokes about uh, Camus, you know, which I assume most of my science audience isn't super familiar with it. Maybe the more liberal arts-oriented ones are. Um, They're furiously looking up Wikipedia. Exactly, which you can't do when you watch TV. You know, you'd have to pause and, and go look at it. Maybe, maybe you would do that. But on, on a comic, I think it, it almost doesn't interrupt the flow as long as there aren't like 14 citations you have to read. Um, if there's only one or two things, it's really not uh, not so bad, I don't think, on the readers. And maybe it's even good, you know, it gets people to sort of explore and learn new things. <laughs> it reminds me of all the old comic books where they used to have all the marginalia. They'd have the footnote, as seen oh, in Detective yeah. you know, Action Comics, number 1137. Or if you remember, in Alaska, you know, Batman had his left testicle removed in order to yeah. pl- implant, uh, you know, and you're like, but it's, oh, they, they used to do more of the scribbling and there's less of that now. But I don't think I've ever seen a footnoted uh, cartoon, but that could be fun. I think I did one, I once footnoted a cartoon because... Because I was, um, I, I, I don't know if you remember, I did this comic on this idea called Polish Hand Magic, um, <laughs> and uh, which, is, which is funny because I did it and I'm told like a bunch of people wrote me and they were like, no, that's Persian hand magic. No, that's oh, Greek hand gosh. magic. And I, I guess, but it's just, just it's, it's a way to, to do um, multiplication on your oh, fingers. Yeah, you, yeah. So it's a system yeah. that people learn as kids or in school or whatever too, right? Yeah, exactly. It's an ab- abacus uh, of the hand. It, basically, yeah. I mean, it, it's a little more complicated than an abacus. I mean, you you, you can do a hand abacus as well. I, I think I've, I might have oh. done a joke about that. Like, you can you can use your hands for binary. And the only cartoonist to ever have done a hand abacus. Joke. <laughs> I know. And uh, but but so th- this trick's a little more complicated. So I showed uh, I showed like what it was and the proof of it. But I I had only heard the idea from one source. Um, and so I, I wanted to, I, I actually wrote the guy, he's a professor at NYU, and I wrote him about it. Um, and uh, he said it was fine. And I just cited the book it was from. But that's. It's not exactly. It's not a footnote in the sense of explaining it because the whole thing was a mathematical proof. Anyway. <laughs> not, not a, I, I don't want to overstate it. It's just. It's just algebraic. There was no. There was no. Uh, you know, higher order math. I think you, clear, you clearly should also be reading, writing for Futurama because they inserted one of the uh, one of the guys who does have a PhD in math inserted in. I think the episode with the Harlem Globetrotters of the future. Um, he had a chalkboard full of equations in the cartoon, and it turned out it was a legitimate equation that he had developed. <laughs> and if you freeze frame them the DVD, you can follow it yourself at home. Uh, so uh, Wikipedia. Speaking of Wikipedia, Wikipedia tells me all, and it says I should say Happy Birthday. Happy Birthday. Oh well, thank you. <laughs> and uh, so we're recording this a few days after your thirtieth birthday, you young. 31st, yeah. right? 31st. Oh, Wikipedia yeah. is wrong. I'm going to have to fix Uh-oh. that. Uh-oh. It? It, didn't up, it didn't automatically update your age. Uh, so we're going to yeah. fix that. I'm going to go fix that later. So this tells me that you started uh, on uh, putting cartoons on the internet when you were about 18. Is that right? That, probably a little earlier. I, I When um, I was in high school, so maybe maybe more like 16, uh, I was I was doing – I had a little site. I, I think it was, it was SaturdayMorning.net or something, and I had a couple just terrible <laughs> – Terrible comics and, and essays and stuff, but it, it's funny too because it was everything that later became a cliche about comics was was definitely in those early comics I was doing. I, I my like there were Comic Sans, like 
I was like copying and pasting my art and, 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 uh, and it was just terrible, but, uh, and it was, it was like the hijinks of a couple of roommates. It was just every bad webcomic cliche. So, well, You've seen the early uh, Doonesbury, right? Bull Tales? That was yeah, in the yeah, Yale yeah, Daily yeah. News. Yeah. You look at, don't feel yeah, bad. Yeah. If you look at that and you see what Doonesbury right. became, you're like, okay, it's good he got it out of his system. And clearly, you know, you use that to get some of the stuff out of your system before moving on. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I absolutely feel that way. I feel like I, I early on, I was more into like, I, I don't want to say shock humor. I never did anything too gratuitous, but um, not that I have a problem with that. But uh, <laughs> but uh, but I, 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 I used to do a lot more sort of, like the joke was that it was a dirty, sexy situation or something, and now I, I try to have it be a little more, a little more highbrow, so to speak. <laughs> and so the early strip that was something uh, sort of a dead end. You didn't have a, a theme there, but the modern uh, SMBC for short. Uh, when did you start with that? That was just a couple years later, or or so, is it all uh, a continuous evolution? So it's yes and no. It was I, I, you know, I did it in high school, and it's it's a lot easier to do things in high school than it is in college. So I got to college, and I. Um, I, I worked on it a bit, just sort of intermittently. I had it like in the school newspaper a little bit, and uh, and then I got out of college with a literature degree, which and a is bright an future ahead uh, of you. The dot yeah. the dot com crash and a literature degree. Yep. It's terrific. Yeah, so I, I was, it was actually it's interesting looking back. I, I you know sometimes you look back and you're like I can't believe I made that decision, but I actually when I got out of college I had a scholarship to get a degree in a, a you know a, a PhD in English, and I almost did it. And then I was like, do I really want to? keep going through this. So I, I actually moved to Los Angeles cause I was, I, I happened to go to college nearby and I just got into the movie industry and, um, and the, the very long story short, it, at a certain point I just hated that industry so bad. I was like, maybe if I got into like, like, cause I had always, whenever I had updated my comics, the audience had grown and I was like, if I had just drawn this out for a few years, maybe I wouldn't have this terrible job. I hate there are a lot um, of people, it seemed like in the early 2000s, I think a lot of the most prominent uh, folks now who have, I mean, you know, say prominent, I mean, everyone has their own audience, but like the like PVP and uh, uh, Diesel Sweeties and so forth, um, all those folks, and Penny Arcade for that matter, which probably is the, the giant in this f- field, all of them started, it seemed like more than 10 years ago, like 10, 12 years ago, it's kind of dot com era, um, everyone started to get broadband around the same time so you could draw, you don't have to worry about, oh my god, I got to compress a GIF that's like 12K or none of yeah. my... None of my 28.8 dial-up modem users will be able to see it. But so we got this explosion of, of uh, bandwidth availability, and then server prices dropped. You could make a website without having as much expertise. All this seemed to happen at the same time. Did that drive you? Were you in that mode where you're like, oh, uh, uh, I can do this, and it's easier? Or did the audience grow as you were just doing the same thing, and you started to notice the um, the scale of that? Well, I, I, it was long enough ago. Like I, I, people who started around that time, you're, 2000 is almost like the periphery between the web and print era. Like I, when I got out of college, I actually submitted an application packet to a bunch of, um, uh, of the old syndicate. I shouldn't say old. They still exist. I say I'm going to get myself in trouble. But, but a bunch of the syndicates, and I, um, you know, you know what I mean by by comic syndicates. Yeah, well, we let's we can explain it to the listeners. Oh yeah, so the. And I am, I am by no means an expert. I'm just someone who's participated in this universe. But the, the basic deal is, like, like with columnists uh, for you know political pundits, you, you're sort of a, a person who turns out content in the form of comics. You become a client of these syndicates, and they give your material to newspapers, and you get a couple bucks every time you reprint in, in the newspaper. So it's very lucrative if you can do it. Like if you're the far side and you're in 3,000 newspapers, and each one has to chip in a couple bucks a day, 
um, you're, you're, you're turning some pretty good money. Well, I had this great interview back in uh, late 1990s with the late Bob Thales, uh, uh, who wrote Frank and Ernest, you know, which is the, the world's yeah. least offensive, but most pleasant strip. And it's still, it's run by his kids now, are also lovely people. And I was working on a New York Times piece about how the internet was helping cartoonists, uh, transition. And, uh, uh, he, he's, of course, a cartoonist, um, by trade, trained as a psychologist, a PhD in psychology, of course. And, uh, <laughs> as you do. And his thing was, even with the strip as sort of mild and inoffensive as that, he was in like, I don't know, 1300 papers. And if you made, sometimes you got $5 a week from some of them, and some you got, the bigger ones you got 50 or, you know, even more yeah. dollars a week, depending on the strip and the popularity. So he was pulling in several hundred thousand dollars a year, yep. clearly, for Frank and Ernest. And I, I kind of love Frank and Ernest, but still, you're like that was the scale of what newspapers did then, and and Scott Adams yep. and a few others, you know, Zitz and some of the other daily yeah. strips to this day are pulling in something less than that. I would say for most of them, Scott Adams top of the heap yeah. in Doonesbury as well. But and, and even then, that was way past the heyday of uh, yeah. But money but papers comics. had it shut down. You still had and papers right. sometimes had two pages of comics. And now it's one. So so yeah. So the syndicates were the enabling factor. They were the intermediator, and they were often really good to artists too, and still are. They really did inculcate and. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, bring people up. And we're, I know a lot of people who are so grateful to people at the syndicate and the newspaper editors were grateful to have new comics and that appealed to younger readers and so forth. But it was, they were the intermediator between you and a newspaper. You didn't typically sell directly unless you're, you know, an editorial right. cartoonist. And your goal was to be in hundreds and then hopefully well over a thousand papers. So, so you were, so well, that was our sidebar now. So you had submitted packets to syndicates hoping to maybe get picked up by one. Yeah, no, I actually, I mean, the, the way it was, I, I actually, I mean, this seems so crazy now. I, I bought a book like made of paper and the book said, <laughs> here are the addresses to which you submit your Xeroxes of, uh, of comics. And so I, you know, I did what you were supposed to do is I Xeroxed six, I think it was six comics a page, four pages, and you put a pack together and I actually got rejected by all four major syndicates. Oh they at least wrote back. Um, <laughs> so that was something. Uh, but yeah, so that, that, that time was, um, was interesting. Um, but I, I, it's funny cause looking back, I was like, Oh, I got rejected. But now if I looked at it, I was like, there's no way a newspaper would have picked up any of this content. It's just too, uh, I, 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 I guess offensive. Like, I mean, I, and I did much safer content back then, but you really have to do PG stuff to be in a, in a newspaper these days. Um, I mean, you have basically forever, but so, yeah, so I started updating. It was only in, in like 2005 when I decided I was going to update regularly, and, and the audience has more or less just grown from there. So I'm sorry, it was 2005, you said? I, I, yeah, I think it would have been 2005 because I was still working my last uh, one of my last real jobs that I really didn't like, and uh, that was the inspiration to leave. <laughs> but at that point, you were actually – were you already generating income at that point? You started to scale yeah. a few years before your audience was – so what was the scale of the audience? I'm always curious what the audience is related to You know how you're driving income. That's a good question. I got – I'm trying to remember. So I, th- I think – gosh, ba- back then maybe the audience was in the range of – 10 to 30,000 visitors a day. Like, uh, I, and that's a the real ballpark, but that's probably about right. Mm-hmm. And what was your method of, of revenue then? Was it ads or was it merchandise or both? At that time, and I, I should, for all of this, I should say I'm a lousy, lousy businessman, at least in, in the ways that I'm supposed to be. Uh, but my, I, I was pretty much entirely ad revenue at that point. Um, I know early on, like now and then, I would do like a digital goods sale, like desktop wallpapers. But I, I, I think I once tried doing shirts myself, and it was just a catastrophe because I'm so disorganized. 
Um, well, there was, what, wasn't there a point when we thought that everyone, I mean, I thought 10 years ago, everyone had all the t-shirts and mugs they could ever want. And apparently that wasn't true. <laughs> yeah. It turns, it, it's funny though. Cause I, so I didn't really get into merchandising really. I mean, I was at Topatico for a while, but I didn't really get into it hardcore until a couple of years ago. So I, I kind of missed on, on the glory days. Cause I, I'm told by people that, you know, in 2000, having a designer funny t-shirt was kind of a novelty. Um, and now everybody does it and it's really cheap. So I guess it, it's it's a bit harder to make an income off that sort of merchandise. Um, well, yeah, you have to do it at scale. I mean, I've talked to Matthew Inman, who uh, does the Oatmeal uh, comic, and his scale, he does things that are, I mean, he's taps into this weird inner part of our brains, the mimetic part, where he does these things. I think his work's very, very funny, and but there's other people who think his work is like the funniest thing they've ever seen in their entire <laughs> life, and they have to own 50 mugs by him or something because he's, he's, he's got this great operation, his mother and stepdad up in a small town in North, in North in Washington ship everything. He's got a, it's in, it's in family system and the postmistress in that town hates them apparently. I bet. Yeah. Increased volume. But so there are people who do that. And, you know, um, and also, uh, from Diesel Sweeties, it's, uh, uh, Rich Stevens. Uh, he mm-hmm. also ships a ton of merchants focused a lot on, on t-shirts and so forth. But that I think, I don't want to say they're the exception, but I know that's part of this mix of how people are figuring out what works. You know, the web comics world, I think there was a point at which you guys were looked on as a category as like, these guys aren't doing anything real. Yeah. They're, they're spending their time, you know, and this was like, let's say a decade ago before things started to bump up a bit. It's like, yeah, these guys are not good enough to be in print. They're doing their thing and whatever. And now all I hear from established cartoonists, people who've primarily spent their life in print is, Oh my God, what are they doing right? And how do we get on that? And is it, too, <laughs> and is it too late? Yeah. I, it, it's been weird because there was a time when it was sort of coming to a head, maybe five years ago where, um, it was becoming more and more clear that the web was where things were going. And uh, there, there was kind of some acrimony, at least between a couple people. And so there were kind of these facts. It was like there were the print people and the web people. And now I, I feel like the distinction is no longer present. Like everyone in print is on the web and everyone on the web does printed material. Um, and it's kind of just about making a living at it. Yeah, it's a le- I think the, there's, uh, with so few newspapers and like the Village Voice yep. chain and all the, the alt papers sort of backing off and shutting down, like the market for print is so small. You, you, you may note that, uh, Tom Tomorrow, uh, aka Dan Perkins, who does This Modern World, uh, you know, yeah. longtime editorial cartoon, he just won the Herblock Award for editorial cartooning, which is pretty cool, but he was resistant to, not online, he had a website for a very long time and he's been writing, um, on it for quite a long time, but he was resistant to the merchandise part and I've been devil in his ear among other people saying <laughs> come over to the merch side and he did his one of his recurring characters is sparky the penguin wearing kind of futuristic glasses yeah and they have a plushie right <clears throat> yeah topatico produced that with yeah. him he spent a while working with them and he's now he's, he did a, a limited edition uh, book with them with a broad edition and he's absolutely delighted and it's fun to watch some of these folks i mean he's a smart guy and he wasn't um a stick in the mud about it. He just didn't think that his work lent itself. And I'm watching more and more cartoonists look at folks like you, like the, the Kickstarter that um, Rich Stevens did for Diesel Sweeties was, I think, a big kick for a bunch of people. Penny Arcade, um, uh, the uh, Order of the Stick Figure, all these Kickstarters that happened uh, in the last couple of years – or the stick figure blew people away. So we're like, God, these guys made it. Oh, yeah, that one was mind-blowing. <clears throat> and it's like, do they have that many fans? So, you know, you have you had done um, – this was your second Kickstarter that you just closed uh, a matter of uh, days ago. I think it was February 22nd you finished it. And you'd done one before, right? And you'd had – so you'd already had experience figuring out what was going to yeah. work and what you were going to do. And that was substantial too, right? I mean, you raised $130,000. 
back not even a year ago. And so I have to ask, so how, how did it go? Did you fulfill it? Are you all done? Did you meet the target? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was actually not bad. I mean, fortunately, you know, having bread pig is, is made that, I mean, they, they do, they do some other stuff, but the main thing that I love having bread pig for is, um, they really help with the organizational stuff. It, it could be because I, I, I just, as someone who does quote unquote art for a living, you know, it's really it, it's really distracting to, to be getting niggling emails that are like, uh, you know, I, I got this in my order and not that, and I'm supposed to get this because inevitably there will be things that don't quite go right. And so, the the more I can minimize my personally having to deal with that, uh, the better off the whole operation runs. Especially too, from I think it's true from everyone's perspective. Like, if I'm handling it, it will take a week to get done, and if someone who knows what they're doing is handling it, it'll take ten minutes. Let's pause to thank one of this week's sponsors. Audible.com offers listeners of The New Disruptors a free trial to its audiobook subscription service. Sign up at audiblepodcast.com slash disruptors and get a free audiobook from its collection of 100,000 titles. You can cancel at any time, but if you stay a member for $14.95 per month, you get a credit good for any book audible.com carries. My favorite book of the last two years is Aaron Morgenstern's The Night Circus. Beautiful to read and beautiful to hear Jim Dale speak its words. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash disruptors to sign up. Now back to the show. Well, tell, yeah, let's talk about Bread Pig because uh, they're so they're a kind of um, like Topatico. We mentioned them as well. These are uh, outfits that work uh, actually largely, almost exclusively, with web cartoonists and some. I know some print cartoonists as well are people who used to primarily be in print. And Topatico made its name partly by being that merch place. Like you wanted to do a T-shirt, you work with them, and they could make it happen. And I know a lot of web comic artists who are like, it is so nice to not have to deal with any of the details. Bread Pig, I know they're, I think, newer. I've forgotten. I know I've, they were working with XKCD and um, the same kind of thing, right? They help you facilitate producing the stuff you need to, to fulfill, um, to fulfill the goods you're sending out. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's great. The, the, I mean, the basic difference between sites like Topatico and Bread Pig and traditional publishing is that they're more just like someone in your corner and they take a much smaller cut. Uh, whereas in theory, the way traditional publishing works, what I would say is the good thing about traditional publishing, at least in theory, is that you sell a lot more books because they have all this infrastructure, but you get a much smaller cut. Um, so it, what's really fascinating about Kickstarter, for example, so like on that Kickstarter we just ran that raised about 300 thousand uh, yeah we'll talk we'll talk about that more in a minute that's a that's a, that you're, that you're, you're uh, bearing the lead oh yeah i just raised three over three hundred thousand. oh really yeah. no but so yeah let's talk about that <laughs> really, no, sorry, go ahead. uh it's 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 uh the, the 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 curious thing about it is that only about eight hundred eight i'm sorry only about eight thousand people participated which is a very small number of people um like if you if you did a if you published through random or harper's and you only sold eight thousand books you're you're not going to make much at all um, you'll be lucky, I think, if you make 10000 I mean, depending on what advance you negotiated. So one of the neat things about the new model is that you don't need as many fans in order to make a, a good amount of money because you're dealing with them directly. This is a great lesson. And uh, I talked a few weeks ago with Adam and Tanya Angst of, uh, of the Mac Journal Tidbits and Take Control, which I've worked with them for years, and their ebook business on doing sort of how-to computer books. 
that was the issue. I haven't wrote computer books for years and we'd get, you know, I get a buck for three months of solid work for a book that was selling for $45. So when I was lucky, we'd sell 10,000 copies and $10,000 for three solid months of work. Not a great wage, not horrible, but <clears throat> not good. But then, you know, certainly not for an expert. Yeah. Well, you'd hope and you'd hope there'd be a big enough audience for it. And then as print book sales declined, it got worse and worse. And instead we have an ebook situation. You can sell, um, I could sell a thousand copies of a book on airport on using you know, Apple's airport system and make $4 a copy. And hey, I made $4,000 for about three weeks work from selling a thousand. <laughs> yep. I think the math here is good. And it's interesting to see how this plays out in every realm, because as you say, you have the first project, you had 4,000, roughly 4,000 backers, which is a fraction of your readership. I mean, that's like right. probably, you know, a percentage or maybe it's a, uh, you know, a half or one tenth of a percent of the people who come through your site in an average month, but you got them to respond. And then you did here now only, you know, seven or eight months later, you come back with a different thing. This is a, a collection science ruining everything since 1543. And you said, Hey, yeah, what's, you know, you can read all this for free online, but we're making a book and the people who seem to be most loyal and interested in what you're doing, you had 8,000 of them vote at different dollar levels as to what your strip means to them. Yeah. No, that's the way I look at it. It's, 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 uh, it's really cool because it makes I think it makes you feel like the boat is pretty stable because you're not extracting a huge amount of money per person from your audience. That's right. You still have a huge audience when you do your third collection, or, or this this is your second, right? The ruining everything. I, no, it's 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 the third. It's the first um, themed collection. Oh, I see. So yeah, so the, when you do the next one, conceivably you could have some overlap with this group. Maybe a big bunch of them come back, but you have all these you'll have new re- readers in the meantime are discovering you and readers before who maybe didn't see the Kickstarter, weren't interested at that point, and now they come back. So yeah, I mean, if you have a million, I don't know what your stats are now. I'm sure you have hundreds of thousands of unique people coming through a month. Is it millions or uh, per? I, I, I mean, the, all the metrics are weird. Yeah. I would say, I think if I, let's say it this way, if I go to Google Analytics and say, tell me uniques per month, I think it's over a million. Yeah, so of that, I mean, 8,000 people yeah. from that. And, and a lot of the people are one right. time that someone refers them to you. Uh, so Matt Bohr is another editorial cartoonist who's a friend of mine and we'll have on the show uh, in a few weeks. Um, Matt, uh, he had this interesting problem is that, a lot, as a lot of editorial cartoonists do, is his style is unique but less well-known. Yours is, I think, idiosyncratic in the sense that you're not going to mistake yours for anyone else. Right. Yeah. And it's also you do sometimes um, you have really played with the format. So it's not just one panel or a conventional strip, you know, go to PVP or Penny Arcade. And they really are very oriented, you know, occasionally break out of that realm, but they have kind of the three panel thing like in print. And sometimes I've read some of your strips. I'm like, when does this end? It goes on and on. And it's great. I'm not criticizing it because I can't imagine (laughs) the amount of time you put into it. But uh, so you've played with that. You can't just take one of your, you know, 10 feet long cartoons and stick it somewhere on someone else's yeah. site and editorial yeah. cartoons leave that. So Matt would have things where he would know that hundreds of thousands of people had referenced the image on his page and were not actually coming. And that's, you know, that's a challenge that I think cartoonists yeah. keep meeting. And, you know, I think, it, I know you didn't do this intentionally, but does this benefit you that people have to come to your site to really see it in situ? It doesn't reproduce well elsewhere. Yeah. And no, it, it's actually, it's funny we actually have a little gimmick that we developed by accident. Uh, I, I don't know if you know, there's the little red button on the website where you get sort of a bonus comic. You know, what's funny is I think I read your strip for like five years and someone <laughs> on Twitter's like, I always love the red button uh, hover over. I'm like, what red button? I discovered this like last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the beauty of it too is you have to reread every comic and then I get more ad money. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yes, thank you. But, but so the, the really interesting thing to me about it has been it was originally the, the extra comic was like a reward for voting for us on this website called Top Web Comics. 
And eventually we pulled out of that just because the comic was big enough that I felt like I was being a jerk by keeping like my audience voting for me. So, but, but people really liked it. It, be, it sort of had become a feature of the site. And so what we, uh, we did is we made it sort of like glorified alt text. Like you hover over the comic and a little other comic pops up. And then it turns out people don't like having comics in front of their comics. <laughs> um, so we, we put this little red button in, um, and what's been beautiful about it is one of the concerns, I don't know how legit of a concern it is, um, it at least has the ring of legitimacy, but I don't know if it actually matters. But one of the concerns people have is if I post my comics on Facebook, am I taking them off site? Are, are a bunch of people just going to stop even going to my site, in which case I lose ad revenue? Um, and so the beauty of the red button is that we only supply it on the main site. We don't put it in the RSS. It's not on Facebook. It's not on Twitter. It's not anywhere. Um, so unless someone wants to go to a lot of work to, to get the images put together on some feed, you have to go to the main page to see it. Um, so it's nice because we're not taking anything away from anyone. We're not sort of restricting content. We're just saying if you want this little bonus feature, you got to come see a couple ads on the website. That's a happy accident to be sure. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's also, but it, I think it's also your style. You have a style that, as I was saying, it lends itself to people coming and exploring your site. And then there's always the, you know, the, I think this is true of a lot of, uh, folks who have been do- at this for a while, you have over 2,000 cartoons now, I think. Yeah, it's getting closer to 3,000. Oh my yeah. gosh. So that's easy to do. Another wiki, we have to update Wikipedia for that too. So there's, <laughs> I rely on Wikipedia for all my information. In fact, that's why I know you're seven feet tall and have gray hair. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, the, the fact that you have such a deep bench, uh, like with all these folks who've been at it for 10, you know, many people now have been at it for 10 years or more. There's upstarts, of course, and they have to build that, that sort of deep bench. But people can come to your site and they can get lost. They can click a random yeah. button. They can go back. And you don't have an episodic structure. So I can read any strip at any point, and it is just as relevant as one I just read. Yeah. No, that's uh, – that's uh, it's a nice thing to have, I, especially for a gag strip. I, I, I think among the, the guys and gals who do stories, it's a little more cumbersome because you got to figure out how to manage a 2,000-strip-long story um, for new readers. But um, but I mean, that's a whole different universe. But for gag strips, I think it's uh, it's great to have a lot of comics. So you're in a very interesting position that you've now have almost eight years of uh, working on your own. I mean, you're running your own thing. You've got do you have, uh, before we before the podcast you mentioned your people. Do you have employees like uh, assistants and so forth, or is it I, contract? Uh, it, it's sort of. I, I mean, I have people who do part time work. Uh, so I have uh, one person who handles my fulfillment. Except we we don't handle fulfillment for the books because. It's kind of like with the oatmeal. It's uh, an old friend of mine uh, who lives in Oklahoma, which is nice because it's central uh, in oh, the U.S. Yeah. at least. She um, handles the whole fulfillment operation. Uh, we, when it's the books, we don't route it through her because she'd have 15,000 books in her <laughs> garage or something. Books are so heavy, we, too. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, so we, we subcontract that because she would probably die. Uh, and uh, and then um, – and so, so that that's sort of a, a salaried agreement. Um, and then I have a, a, an assistant who uh, d- d- doesn't live near me just to sort of on call, which, which is actually – it's remarkably helpful because it just means when little stuff comes up, you know, the kind of thing that takes a half hour if you're diligent, but two hours if you're occupied with other things, he can help me out with that. And uh, and I also have a, a manager who I um, pay on commission who, uh, it, at this point, mostly advises me um, just on career stuff and, and legal things and helps with negotiation, that sort of stuff. That's great, you know, because from the outside, I'm not that it looks like you're a small operation, but it's, you know, you've got, it's that kind of thing like you sit down and you draw a strip, but then with the level of interest, uh, you know, you've got 
a million people coming through. You've got yeah. millions of pages coming through every month. You've got merchandise. You've got these campaigns, and um, and that's not and that's not all. You've also have uh, uh, you've been doing a video project for like for four years. It's the is it um, it's the uh, like the I've forgotten the name of it. I'm sorry. Wait. Uh, SMBC Theater. Yeah. Wait. Say, say it again. It's SMBC Theater. SMBC Theater. Right. So you've been working on that for for multiple years as well. Does that is that um, did that scratch an itch that you weren't able to scratch with a cartoon, and and now you had an audience that could come uh, take a look at it? Yeah, to an extent. I mean, it, it, SMC Theater is a sort of um, cooperative project between me and um, my old friend James Ashby, um, and he, he he's over time taken more of a lead role on it as I have uh, realized I, I'm more useful uh, sitting in a dark room drawing pictures. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that is to say, I'm not very good at production, um, but. Uh, but yeah, uh, it, it was nice because it was a project we'd wanted to do for a long time, and we finally just uh, had the resources, meaning like a tiny bit of disposable income and my audience uh, to, to 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 get things sort of going. Um, so yeah, that that's been very interesting because it's it's sort of a completely different um, universe from the comic universe in terms of developing an audience and all that. And that shows up on the same. I know if I scroll down on the comic, I can see what's going on there at the bottom. Little news and and the SMBC theater at the bottom. Yes, it's interesting. Well, it's interesting how you diversify what you're doing. I mean, I, I wonder, you know, having done it this long, do you find yourself? Do you have? I don't know. Do you have a publishing schedule? I know you update multiple times a week, but are you like rigorous about? I'm going to do it Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Words as things develop that you. Post. With the comics, I always update uh, daily, usually, unless I'm blowing it. Uh, right now, I usually update around um, uh, 8 a.m. Eastern Time. It's daily? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, clearly, I'm not coming back to the site. Yeah. That explains why. That explains the phenomenon where I'm like, I don't think I've seen any of these. No, I haven't seen this, this, this. Yeah, and yeah, back, yeah. back, back. That's good. No, I, I, I don't know. I probably, I, I've actually debated whether I should cut back because it's, I mean, it is it is fairly onerous to have to do a, a daily comic um and uh, but I, I think I originally just started doing it because I was like, well, that's what the newspapers do, so I got to do it too. But it turns out almost nobody. Do- I actually I don't know other than Cyanide and Happiness, but that's done by four guys. Um, I can't think of Rich Stevens. I believe is still updating. Rich Stevens is daily. daily. Yeah. He had the same thing. He was well. He was syndicated briefly. A terrible yep. experience for him, and uh, yep. and not lucrative at all. Uh, many years ago, and he uh, I think he got in that same habit where it's like to develop, and he's got a plot driven thing with current characters and and so forth it was like they do it daily so if you were trying to do something uh you're trying to imitate what the dailies did so that people had the same expectations they could come back and there's something new every day yeah except that like the oatmeal has completely shown it to be unnecessary exactly um i mean it, it, that's all i think i may i'm just defending myself but I, I think that's only true to an extent like the Oatmeal, which I, I have to say is, is one of my favorite comics, but I, I, I do always read it. But he, I think he's probably constrained to do a certain type of content. He has to do these super giant comics that have to be very shareable. And, and so I, I think it, to do a comic like, um, like I'm doing, I, I need to be updating more regularly to keep people coming back. Because a lot of the gags are just sort of little one-offs. And, uh, but I, I don't even know if that's true now, because like Kate Beaton... Mm-hmm. Uh, with Hark of Agrin, like which she updates kind of whenever she feels like it. She's disappeared for a while. I think she's got other projects going yeah, on. Yeah, I think she's on to other things. But even when she was doing it fairly regularly, it was still sort of whenever she felt like it. And 
you know, I mean, I, it, it wasn't the biggest audience on the internet, but it was, she had a pretty sizable following and it, it absolutely one of the most loyal followings. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm fascinated by her because, uh, yeah. she, it's not that she didn't pay her dues. It's just that she went from sort of zero to everywhere immediately. She has a very interesting style and her sense of humor is really so quirky. When I started reading it, I thought nobody else will ever read this wonderful <laughs> thing. I hope she doesn't lose heart. And then she produces a best-selling collection. Right. Exactly. Well, I think that that's the thing, though, is, is you want to give people that feeling that you're talking to them. I had that happen with Ben Folds 5 when they were touring years and years ago that I, my wife and I bought tickets. Yeah. We went to a show and I didn't realize two things. One, I didn't realize they were popular because they were so odd. Their music was so strange. <laughs> I didn't watch MTV, so I didn't know they were popular. And B, I did not know – or number two, point – I, I, I didn't know that they uh, appealed to young people. So we were like 10 years older than everyone else. <laughs> the music was the loudest sound I've ever heard in person and um, wasn't as enjoyable as I thought. But it was that thing. I thought I was like, oh, here's a discovery. And oh, yeah. There's a there's a famous news radio episode in which um, Matthew, uh, the kind of crazy, uh, <laughs> the crazy character who doesn't really very competent at anything. He discovers Dilbert in like 1998 or something. And he's trying to <laughs> promote it. And everyone's like, we already know what Dilbert is. Dilbert is like the most established. Yes, yes, we know. And that was 15 years ago. And people are like, oh yeah, we don't need to tell us about that. It's not this little precious thing you've discovered. Yeah. But I think that's how I found you is I, you know, I was unaware of it. And several years ago, someone I know who's, a, you know, sort of bright guy and very interested in, in, I think lots of how ideas interact and logic, whatever said, you have to read this because this is exactly the way you think. I was like, Oh yeah, it is. It's totally, it's like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know anybody else thought exactly that way. This is great. And you know, it's the sense of personal identification with what you're doing. And clearly there's an audience for that, not just by your web views, but I, I come back to your Kickstarter campaign where, you know, you set out for $20,000. What, what did you think you might make? Was 20,000 was like, we can pay for printing and we know that we'll cover expenses, but were you like, you know, this is easily a hundred or 200 grand or was it, let's be modest and, and figure out where this goes. We actually, it's a very specific reason for setting it um, at about that level. So we, 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 I think we being honest with myself, we probably anticipated about a hundred thousand. So we, we did do a lot better than expectations. And you, and you have the history. You've done one of the previous years. Yeah. A, a somewhat different thing, but you'd raised well over a hundred thousand for that. Yeah. So the, the reason we set a lower goal is, is uh, you might find surprising. Um, my, my wife uh, is a research scientist and she participated uh, or helped organize a thing called SciFund. Are you familiar with this? I don't know that. So it's a group called SciFund. They, they do these fundraisers. It, 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 it's like Kickstarter for science, right? Uh, that's mm. the, that's, I don't know what their actual pitch is, but it's something like that. And uh, so they, you know, did a fundraiser, but they, they do like cyclical fundraisers for a bunch of projects at once. That's their gimmick. And what they found, they, so they actually, they, they crunched the numbers. They actually looked at um, at least the correlations for success. And one of the things they found is you're more likely to get more money after you've passed your goal. And I don't know, I've, I've talked to people about this. I, we have different sort of psychological theories on why that should be because it's very counterintuitive. Oh, I don't, I don't think so. I would disagree because I think, oh, really? well, my logic would be, let's, let me, let me, let's have a violent disagreement now because that makes for good radio. Good yeah, yeah. Podcast, <laughs> is my <laughs> argument would be, and I've, I've advised a few people on Kickstarter campaigns informally, and it's that once you pass a certain point, people think it's real and before that it's speculative. So before that, they're betting on mm -hmm. you because they know what you do. And after that, it can be much more of a, I'm going to buy a product because this is being made. That's, yeah, that's interesting because I, I was talking to Christina Shu from uh, Bread Pig and the way she said, it was 
Well, after you've reached your goal, it's just shopping. Yeah, that, yeah that's well, that's much uh, pithier than me, but that's exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's true. Like you look at the electronics things it, it, when something hits. I mean, some of those like Pebble or whatever, they'll blow through their initial hundred thousand dollar goal instantly, and this and it ha- sometimes happens within a few hours. And in the next thirty days, are people shopping for a watch? Right, exactly. Uh, and I so we we I mean I. I, I should say we we do set a goal. You know, twenty thousand is enough that we wouldn't lose money, basically. Um, but but we mainly we so to speak artificially set it low, knowing that the sooner we can cross the line, um, the better the project will do. At least that that's the theory. What's fascinating to me is how frequently now I'm seeing these projects that are really large. And you're, I think you're in a great position because a you've got. Red Pig uh, helping you with aspects of production fulfillment, so you're not, enti- and you also have experience doing books and fulfilling stuff, so you're not on your own. And making a book is not as hard as making a Pebble watch. We can agree. I, yeah, I, I hope so. Man. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like I'm seeing a lot more projects um, with the right coordinates, where it's people who have, uh, you know, a loyal audience like you do, and have sufficient knowledge of what they've done, and, and are typically might be coming back to Kickstarter for a second time, or it's a project they've done before successfully. In a different way, and now they're coming to crowdfunding. These projects seem to be getting a much—I I, want to say—a much bigger jump over the base amount, and they're also being, I think, fulfilled a little better because people have a better expectation that they can be fulfilled. That it's not something that's never been done before. People have printed books before, even if they haven't made. Yeah, them, you know. Yeah, they, oh, oh yeah. Yeah, and it, well, especially like like I mean, you know, the, the, one of the new things Kickstarter does is they have you declare what you think the risk might be, and. Um, so it's very for, for for something like what we're doing um, with this book. There is nothing we're making that we don't know how to make that we haven't made before um, that we don't know someone who can do the job. So I, I we're, we're we're sort of it's very easy for us to say it's going to be fine. Like as you say with the Pebble Watch or or like some of these three D printing groups, I, I just assume there's going to be uh, if, if I were to patronize a three D printing group, I would expect there to be delays. Yeah, and that's, I mean, the physical world is a very complicated one, and uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. I think even people are well aware of it. We've, we've talked to some product people before on this show, uh, like the folks who made uh, Pen Type A, and they weren't naive, and they'd made stuff before, but the scale is what gets you. It's, it, yeah. printing 10,000 books is not very much more difficult than printing 1,000 books. Making 10,000 Pebble watches is a lot more difficult than making 500. Oh, yeah. A whole different Yeah, well, I mean, because, I mean, like you say, with a book, it's actually in a sense easier to print 10,000 because it's, it's much less expensive. And you just, you know, like figuring out how to get 200 books printed would be kind of a nightmare because you'd, you'd have to, I don't know what you would do. You'd have to like go to a, a small press and try to get them to discount you. Whereas 10,000 is, is, is about right. You know, 10,000, you get a nice discount. They're used to doing it. Big companies will take you and, and take you seriously. Um, whereas like with the pebble thing, I, I don't even know how they pulled it off. It's a huge data build. I mean, this is, it's sort of like, uh, well, you, you're a married man. So, you know, it's like when you have a wedding, <laughs> when you have a wedding, a wedding is like a small business. You have to sort of start this limited liability company that, that's going to close down at a certain date. It's a time limited company and you could have a budget of from hundreds to hundreds of thousands of dollars and you need to stay within budget and, and, and deliver it on time. There's a deadline. And I feel like Kickstarter, Kickstarters are like marriages, uh, yeah, that yeah. you're, you know, you're making a binding promise. There's deadline for things. And even if you already have a company, you're starting a new enterprise. I imagine that your your science collection is taking up a disproportionate amount of your time at times, even with all this help. Yep. And you have to clearly going to bring in other people or outside contractors to to pull all the pieces need together to fulfill for these 8,000 people. Oh, yeah. No. And I, I mean, I, 
I consider that I have a fairly easy version of that job. Like I, I think I was talking to you. I have, I have friends who are doing a, a, a con called Gamer X, and they yes. did a fundraiser for it. And that's Gamer G A Y M E R. Yes, uh, it's the first LGBTQ centric gaming convention. Awesome. Uh, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really God, given cool. all the reports you get back from conventions about just harassment of women and so forth, I'm like, I think oh, that's yeah. great that there's going to be a safe place. <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. Jeez. I know. I you know, it's it's funny. We've gotten a lot of put with it. every time it gets posted anywhere, someone will be like, "Well, why do these people need their own separatist?" Oh my God. Convention? And I'm just like, I. First, I mean, I, first get a sex change and go to a regular gaming convention as a woman. <laughs> yeah. Then come back and talk to us, and we'll have a uh, discussion about yeah, it. Yeah, and I'm like, I, I even if even if that weren't the case, like I, I mean, like I used to live in Thai town in L.A. and they would have a yearly Thai festival, and no one was like, <laughs> "Why do these people need?" Their own. Oh, Why can't people. it just be a people festival? You know. I, I think this is aligned with what I'm trying to do with this podcast too. Is that you know the the gamer convention is going to be it's there's an audience for that. It's not like they're trying to find an audience. They know they have an audience, and they're doing something directly for that audience that that audience wants. And you know, it's exactly what you're doing. Is you didn't create this science collection, for instance. Say, I wonder if anyone's interested. I mean, you did some stunt by putting it up, but you knew people were interested. You're not doing it prospectively. You're doing it. It's not a. It's not on spec as such. This is fulfilling what you know people want. I'm sure people have told you, like, hey, would you do another collection? Or you just know there's a market for it because you're interacting with your audience all the time. Yeah, no, it's 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 it makes life a lot um, a lot easier. Um, but but uh, uh, with with the uh, j- just to finish my point, the the, the GamerCon thing uh, or GamerX is what it's called now. Like it's it's interesting that it's been different for him because you know it's for an event. So like whereas with the book, it's a, it's almost like just selling a pre order. It's 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 a straight up exchange. Whereas with the event, there's so many unknowns they've had to deal with trying to make this thing happen for a bunch of people. And I don't, it, it, I am not the least bit envious of how hard it's been uh, on their end. It, we've talked about um, the XOXO festival a bunch of times on, uh, which I highly recommend to everyone listening and to, <laughs> to attend, which is uh, in Portland uh, last September is going to happen. They've decided to do another one. It'll be in Portland this September. And uh, it was an amazing event because of how they brought people together, you know, creating and distributing things and mm-hmm. sort of, you know, talked about that. But it was also – they funded it through Kickstarter and it was fascinating to see like they had a – and they'd already – the two guys involved had done conferences before. They knew how to do stuff. But you're still – you're pulling something into existence. And I keep thinking yeah. of Kickstarter as like a magic trick in that it's you, – you post your hopes and dreams and say, I've done stuff like this. This. I would love to do more of it. The thing that's keeping me from doing it is it's not always money. Sometimes it's money plus morale, uh, you know, uh, a morale boost. Like I need to know people want this. Sometimes it's just yeah. money. Like I want to do this thing. And if you guys can come up with an up, then I will pull into existence this thing that did not previously <laughs> exist for you. Poof. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a beautiful system. Uh, I, I, I almost want to say the, the way I like thinking about it is it's like, it's like this, the way capitalism is supposed to work is, you know, people have a demand or you find a demand that people didn't know they have, you know, you add information to the system and then you're happy to get paid for it and people are happy to get it. And that's the whole deal. Well, it's like, I think I've been starting to talk about normal conventional sales, like retail sales are reverse crowdfunding, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> which is maybe the wrong way to think of it. But it is true is that people are investing in your future. They're investing, they come to Kickstarter and it is at some level like an investment, even though Kickstarter is a rewards based system that does not promise a return on investment and so forth. There'll be, there are going to be many more, uh, because of the Jobs Act, there'll be many more 
sites coming up, I think, that are going to be investment-directed uh, crowdfunding where there will be me- measurables and, and promises and returns and maybe yeah. refunds if things don't happen. So there will be a model for that. But even in rewards-based crowdfunding, Kickstarter and Indiegogo and the rest, what they're asking people to do is take a flyer, you know, say, hey, you're going to trust that this person is going to do the thing they uh, say they're going to do and they've established trust with you in some way and you're almost like an investor in, an, in like an LLC. Like you're buying a share in this person's future and they're going to use that money you've invested to produce the thing as an outcome. Yeah. No, I, I a while back I was, I was talking to people about um, – people often ask like what can I do to support you? And I hate to sound callous about it but it's very simple is you should buy something. <laughs> Um, I I think that people have this idea that they, I don't know what the, I I don't actually know what the plan would be other than to buy something. I mean, I guess you could like canvas your university or something. Tip jar? uh, I don't, well, there's a funny thing though is that I think the tip jar mentality still is pervasive in the way people think about how folks make a living. So uh, doing things like blogs or podcasts and we're, you know, we're in this uh, apparently new golden age of podcasts where we can get sponsors. Later, sponsors will be inserted into this episode, in fact. (laughs) Thank you. And, uh, but sponsorship is now a kind of a newer thing in podcasting. Um, you know, it was around for a while and bigger podcasts got them, but I'm seeing more and more podcasts get modest sponsorships that are helping them survive. Let's pause to thank our other sponsor this week. Coming soon to the App Store, it's WordFlu from Renegade Citizen. WordFlu is a new multiplayer word game that its designers say combines elements of Scrabble and Tetris. If a picture is worth a thousand words, a video is worth a million. So visit WordFlu, W-O-R-D-F-L-U dot com and watch a video of the game and then sign up to be notified when the app ships. Warning, there's no cure for memetic viruses. Now back to the show. Blogging, you've got Google AdSense, which is sort of, you know, it, it's middling, but I'm seeing sponsorships and uh, people uh, doing sell through to Amazon, other things like that. And Kickstarter is now another tool in there. But I think there was this notion because early bloggers were like, I don't know how to make a living from this. I can't charge you a subscription fee because it's too complicated to do that. Here's a tip jar. And some people made thousands or tens of thousands of dollars a year from that. And I feel like the new model now is subscriptions and you don't have a subscription on your site. Everything you're on your site is free. The Kickstarter seems to be your mechanism for, for support as well as advertising and, and merchandise sales. Does a subscription make any sense in what you're doing? Is that, is that a few, even if it's a leaky subscription or a voluntary one, or is that just too far out of the realm of what kind of interaction you want to have with visitors? We, we're actually, uh, I, I, I don't know how much I can say, but we're actually working on something like that. Um, my, 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 my sort of general theory of internet commerce is that your goal in life should be to get mo- the most people to know who you are or what your product is and then find exclusive stuff for them. Yeah. So in, in terms of subscription, at least for us, I mean, there, different ways to do it. Um, I think for us, the best way would be, um, we, to offer some little amount of bonus stuff for, or, or, you know, I, we, we've talked about, for example, doing an ads free site, um, for a small fee. Which I think might do well. I, I don't know because you know, obviously you've, you've got offset if you can't show as many ads. Um, yeah, but, but, you, but yeah, you know what the ad but, rates are these days. You have to show a lot of ads to make yep, any money. So you sure do. Uh, you know, somebody, and also, I keep finding this model like Andrew Sullivan um, going a private essentially with his effort and using the leaky or porous paywall approach, so people can read a little bit. We're doing that at the the magazine, Marco yep. Arment's publication that I edit. We have uh, it's two bucks for four weeks subscription, but we just added. Uh, you, know, you can read an article on the web every month. And it does a little bit of tracking to make sure people don't abuse it, but we don't care that much about right. that. It's leaky and that. 
notion of saying like, well, you know, either um, we're going to give away a little bit for free, the freemium model-ish sort of thing, and you pay us something and the aggregate of all those who pay make this all the work, or we're going to give away everything for free, but there's this extra bonus level thing you can do. And again, as with your Kickstarter, you only need you know, a tenth of a percent of regular visitors exactly. to opt in, and it's this massively new thing. I, I want to talk about profit for a moment. Let's talk about sure. how much money do you make? No, yeah. <laughs> tell me your, give me your bank statements. That's part of the show agreement. You know, uh, I think there's this funny idea. Maybe this, we'll, we'll finish on this because I think there's this funny idea that if you use Kickstarter or if you're a struggling artist, which, you know, you're not a struggling artist at this point, that you shouldn't be making money that like, like it's wrong to be right. making a profit. And I've talked to so many people on this podcast already and I'm oriented this way too is like I don't own a boat or a second home and maybe I will own a second home someday if I was if I, it sounds sounds more like a hassle to me than it's worth but I'm not trying to feed uh, luxury items in my life, trying to feed my family and put money aside. I've got children to go to college and there's retirement and God knows what the right. future is. I don't have any objection to making a profit on what I do and I don't think anyone who is oriented towards you know producing things has that objection because profit when you're making stuff independently isn't so much profit as a hedge against the future. How do you feel? How, what is your relationship to, to money or what is your reaction even when people do get that kind of response? I've, I've heard a lot of people do when you have a successful Kickstarter, like Amanda, the response to Amanda Palmer's 1.X million dollar thing was, you have all the money in the world now. What do you need me for? You just raised $340,000. Yep. <laughs> yeah. how, how do you interact with that sort of expectation? Well, we... I, I got a little of that, I think, on the last one because I, I think you know it was like the last couple of days and we'd already done very well. And I would post about it and say, "Hey, only a couple of days left," and people would say, "Don't you have enough money?" <laughs> and uh, no, I want I, all the money in the world. I know. I, and until I have all of it, no, um, no. But but I there's as you know there's this sort of mysticism about money as if it's separate from human experience and it gets this ugly thing we do with each other. <laughs> but I I consider I, I, I view money in a very economic sense. Um, you know, nobody is. Uh, involuntarily forced to buy my products. I'm just letting people know they exist. And then if they want them, they give money to me. Um, and, and the way I look at it is having a support base like this for me, uh, basically allows me to do a better job. It allows me to make choices about how I exist. So in my case, when I, when I was first doing it, I had to spend a lot of time. I mean, just little stuff. I, I think people would be surprised. Like, so when I was first doing it, I was making maybe a thousand dollars a month, which is to put it in perspective, my rent, because it was in San Jose, it was a studio, but it was like 800 a month. Right. So I was, I was really living cheap. And um, I don't even know how I did that. <laughs> I say, ramen, is, <laughs> yeah. ramen is delicious for every meal. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah that's, that's pretty, it was, it was pretty close Who to Who needs electricity? Let me ask you that. Yeah, yeah. I know, you get to thinking that way. You're like, what could I do without? Um, but, uh, but so one thing, for example, this is, this is the, I remember this from back then is I used to, I would walk to school, which was like a mile, um, which I, I didn't consider a hardship. That was, that was sort of fun, but it meant that, you know, I needed to run, I, I needed to run home to make lunch cause I couldn't eat out for lunch, which meant that I, I was a little less productive, I think, cause I had to walk a mile home to eat. And so it's just, if you have a struggling artist, you know, giving someone an extra hundred dollars a month really means you get something better out of them. And and so I, people have this idea that money is, uh, you know, it, it just uglifies everything it touches. But I, 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 to my mind, it's just an exchange of value. It's you saying to me, I like what you're doing, so here's a little more latitude with how to manage your environment. And I think you'll make good use of it. And I, I think there's nothing at all ugly about it. And so, so I think I, 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 the, the people who want to say, don't you have enough money? To me, it's a non sequitur. It's not about... Uh, I mean, I, I personally, I do not strive to make the most money, but purely for aesthetic reasons. Like, I don't, 
I don't strive. I, I could probably make more money off my site, but I'm happier uh, spending more time reading books and, and just relaxing a little. Well, and that's where uh, the Kickstarter, right? I mean, that the money, the, the you know, quote unquote extra money from that, like whatever profit is left over from that, which is still, you know, obviously if you're still to be determined, there's so much cost involved in fulfilling it. And, you know, maybe you'll make the choice to print 30,000 books and eat up all the money, but then you can sell them later, make profit. You have all those factors as well, but that, that extra money goes into, uh, you know, again, extra money goes into you being, having less necessity to be maximizing profit at every turn because exactly. you have the freedom now. It, it, it really, it, it, it's very, it's a very direct effect. I mean, it's, it, it, it maybe sounds a little wishy-washy, but like having an income, for example, such that I can have an assistant means that this week I can probably read an extra book. And if my job for the people who consume my material is to be as interesting as possible. I suppose I'm a little more interesting if I've read that extra book. And so th there really is a, a direct relation between this sort of stuff. And I, I should say too, there's this sort of spot between when you're broke and when you're um, making good money where it's actually harder to do good work because when you're broke, you have no responsibility. <laughs> so so I, it's funny because I look back, I'm like, I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, I mean, I, it's better for me now that I have all these people helping me out. But there was a while there where it was like, why am I making so much more money and I am so I have so much less free time? Yeah. Like it's it doesn't make any sense. But it makes sense if you think, well, when you're making, as I was, like 12000 a year, no one's calling you on the phone. Uh, <laughs> to bug you about a deal you need to make a decision on. You're just doing your comic and whatever else you do and, you know, eating ramen. Um, and I assume, uh, I have not experienced this yet, but I assume if you're making $10 million a year, you can buy back a lot of that time and you can get back to just eating, uh, well, maybe you eat something better, but you're still just doing your... That's a, I mean, there's an equation is money, money does equal time. And if time is the precious commodity you need to produce your work, then more money gives you more of that precious commodity, which is a return on investment for your patrons. And, and I keep coming back. I mean, Kickstarter, because it sometimes seems like a product ordering site and they've taken steps, you know, to, in the, in the purely, um, production side, the consumer electronics and other kinds of products to reduce that product ordering feel by not letting you order multiples and so forth. Right. But even in the realm that you're in, it's, it can seem like it's a pre-order when it really still is. This is a vote of confidence for you. I, Amanda Palmer just had a, she gave this Ted talk, uh, not long ago and they edited it and put it up instantly because it had such a strong response, uh, which they never, <laughs> they never do. And I just <laughs> watched it last night and it's a wonderful watch because she's such a, um, She's such a uh, profound uh, voice for what an artist does, what you're actually doing in that realm. But she said this thing that's great. that has been widely quoted now and everyone listening probably has already heard it. But it's that I don't make anyone give me money. I let them give me money. I right. let them help. They ask how to help. And I let them help. So she has people come to her concerts and they will, they bring homemade food and, and they all sit together and eat. And this is an experience for the person making the food gets to sit with Amanda F. Palmer and her band and talk. And she's totally open to that. And for you, I mean, you've got these 8,000 people on this Kickstarter plus, you know, hundreds of thousands of people coming through all the time. It feels to me like you're letting them help you so that you can have a relationship with them. Yeah, that's that's a good way to look at it. And what's nice too, and uh, I, I think I mentioned earlier, it, it allows us to do more interesting stuff for uh, our readers, the more capital we have. So uh, so we're doing an event in Boston in April uh, called the Festival of Bad Ad Hoc Hypotheses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I saw the link for this. On, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. great. Uh, so the, the, the basic idea is... Um, is that I, it was actually based, I had this comic and the, the idea was it was this theory of, uh, I think it was a, a theory of, of babies 
of an evolutionary theory of babies, which is the reason that babies are hairless is to be more aerodynamic. The reason they are soft is so that you can uh, kick them and they won't be severely damaged. And the whole reason is that you can spread your genes farther if you take your baby and <laughs> kick it to the next village over the mountains. And uh, so I, it was funny because we, we the, the joke in the comic was, well, you, you could do a whole event about this where it's like, who has the very best, terrible adaptationist, overly adaptationist theory? I, I should say adaptationist is kind of a negative term. It means like, uh, um, you know, well, it means bad ad hoc theory of evolution usually. I'll, and I'll yeah, well, yeah, this fits somewhere what? between like the Ig Nobel prizes and the uh, the Darwin Awards, right? It's like yeah, Darwin Awards, exactly Darwin Awards awards really truly purposely bad behavior that people have done because they're not very smart, and the Ig Nobel prizes rewards really odd papers that people have actually had published. And so, you're if you the Venn diagram, there's a nice spot in the middle for this. That's yeah, I had, it's funny. I hadn't thought about that, and a couple of people have said that, and it's like, yeah, I guess. That's kind of the universe we're entering. <laughs> uh, and it's nice because so, so, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have a few speakers. We're trying to get some uh, celebrity judges, you know, celebrity in the totally dorky sense of the word um, to sort of decide who has the very best bad ad hoc, bad ad hoc uh, evolutionary theory. Um, but what's, uh, to, to get back to the, the point, like what's, what's cool is I could not have done this, even if I had the same audience size, I could not have done this a few years ago. But now we have enough cash on hand that we can float a little money to get some space and get some shirts made and posters and all that stuff. And, and, um, so, and, and that's purely because we have a readership that trusts us. Um, we, at least we, I think we know that this event will go well because we posted about it on online and we had a huge response about it. You know, just hundreds of people were like, if you make this, I will find a way to attend it. And so because of that loyalty and because of the money that we've already gotten from the audience in the past, we can put together this event, which I should say, I am not anticipating making any money off it. If I do, I will be surprised and delighted, mm -hmm. um, but purely doing it because I think it would be cool to exist in a universe where this festival happens. So, I, I mean, I feel, I mean, I could contextualize that in a money sense too. I could say, well, we're also hopefully making our audience love us a little more and, and I, I, we will try to make money off it. But it's not something I can imagine an investor coming by and saying, "I got to plunk some money on this," you know. <laughs> so it's I, I, this is what? still upcoming. We're taping this because this is the vagaries of taping. We're taping this in advance, but it's going to be April twentieth, two thousand thirteen, yes. at the MIT campus in beautiful Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'll have a link in the show notes to it, so people listening don't have to write that down. Cool. Yeah. Uh, it's great. Well, that, I think that's the thing is you're, it's that part of that thing. You're bringing things into existence that people maybe even don't know they want, but they know they like what you do and they're trusting you to, to do something interesting with the money that they're providing. Yeah. That's, I, I like to think of it in terms of comparative advantage. It's, it's just, I try to be really good at this small class of things, which is telling nerdy jokes and just knowing about obscure topics um, and hopefully having a good sense of humor. And, you know, like I have a brother who does computer programming. We, we just do not cross paths career-wise really at all, uh, except we work together just for fun sometimes. But, but our expertise is completely different. And I think it's better that way, you know. Uh, it's, it's better that people just try very hard to become good at specific things, and then we just exchange our productions later. That seems to be what – you know, this new thing is about is whatever this new, I try not to call it like economy 2.0 or 3.0, whatever, but whatever, whatever's <laughs> happening, there's a, you know, increasing number of people involved in it who are, it's not just follow your bliss, but it's like things you're good at, competent at, you want to do that are, um, that are creative and meaningful that put, you know, there's that dent in the universe thing that Steve Jobs said, but it's the, it's something productive and not necessarily yeah. useful, but interesting and, uh, and people want to support. Well, I, uh, I, I would even, I, I think I, I, I mean, maybe this isn't universally true, but the, 
the question of utility, I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think I, you could very easily argue that, um, I don't know, having a, a, a Nocturne by Chopin on YouTube is useful because there will be a time when you don't feel like working and you can put on this four-minute-long song and then you do. I mean, being able to manage how you feel about the universe um, is useful, I think, even in an economic sense. Well, people are listening to this podcast, so I don't know if this is useful or not. <laughs> I, <laughs> I hope it's, everything else. I hope it's not useful at all. I want it to be purely <laughs> aesthetic in nature. Well, well, Zach, thanks for taking the time to talk about what you do because I think it's I think it's very broadly useful to so many people to understand uh, you know how you navigated this. Well, yeah, thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. It's great. Well, thanks, and I'll keep I'll keep reading and uh, look to the show notes, folks, to find all the links we talked about. You've been listening to The New Disruptors, a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net slash new disruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes, where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email newdisruptors at muleradio.net if you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.muleradio.net. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time.